This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Democracy does not defend itself. So remember that. It's up to us. It's up to you guys. It's up to me. It's up to all of us to make sure that democracy is protected and defended because without what we do, democracy cannot exist. So. Hello, and welcome back to Politics is Everything. I'm Kara Ong Whaley. We're talking about the state of news media and journalism in this episode with Tara Setmeyer. She joins us to discuss the fallout from the Dominion voting system settlement with Fox News and also weighs in on the 2024 presidential election. As you'll hear, she expresses deep concern for the way in which the media is contributing to the desensitization of crazy, as she calls it, and how some channels are already covering the 2024 presidential election as if it were a regular one. It feels like Groundhog Day, says Tara, about the media making the same mistakes as they did in 2016. This is the time for journalists and media to seriously consider the way they approach coverage and content of politics, and especially of elections. Tara Setmeyer is a contributor to ABC News, MSNBC, and a former GOP communications director on Capitol Hill. Tara, thank you so much for joining us here at UVA. Can you start us off by giving us your analysis of the state of the news media? I'll start with the Fox News Dominion case and what's happening there since it's the big news of the week in the media space. Um, you know, integrity and in journalism has been something that I think has been spotlighted for the last few years because of Donald Trump's attacks on the media, calling the media the enemy of the people and using very bellicose language from eras of strongmen in Europe, you know, 70 years ago. Uh, it's a tactic to undermine the media because it's the idea of a free press was something that was very important to our founding fathers. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was very keen on making sure that newspapers um, and the free press were, were given that autonomy, but he also got annoyed at them too when, when they were doing their jobs of informing and investigating and exposing, holding public officials accountable. You know, it's a, it's a give and take. But I think it's part of our democracy. It's one of the one of the things that makes our democracy robust. And it was no accident that Trump and his acolytes continue to attack and undermine the institution of the free press because who's going to ultimately hold them accountable? And so that was on purpose. Now, for years, um, I was in the Republican Party for 27 years. I was part of the, the, the vast right-wing conservative uh, conspiracy, as Hillary Clinton used to call it. Um, in hindsight now, I think she, she might have been right. Um, but for years, the idea of just having three major um, broadcast networks, right? It was ABC, CBS, NBC. There was no cable news until 1981, I believe, um, when CNN was created and then the major print newspapers. So it was much easier to control messages. And there wasn't, I mean, the idea of opinion hosting and like what, you, what we see in primetime cable news now was unfathomable to the old school news, news folks back in the day. I had a professor at GW, his name was Professor Puffenbarger. 
<laughs> and he was just as quirky as his name. He was he was an old battle axe in the journalism space, and he'd worked for the Washington Post for decades. And he was like a hundred when I, when he was my professor. Uh, that was 1994. So um, he's he's dead and gone now. But Professor Puffenbarger was an old school guy. He was very much you know a gumshoe reporter. Do your do your research walk the beat, talk to sources, make sure it's sourced well, and keep your own opinions out of it. Um, and I think he would be quite alarmed at where the, the, the media and journalism profession has gone because of the competition for subscribers, for readers, for eyeballs. You know, it's a very different media landscape. The competition is incredible now because of these things right here because we have access to social media and, and a plethora of information on a global scale right in the palm of our hands. And I think some of the, uh, some of the sensationalism and, and the desire to, to stay afloat and, and make money for shareholders has put a little bit of, a, little bit of a, a taint on the journalism profession because it's starting to blur lines between entertainment and information. And some people, they're unapologetic about it, like Fox, right? They, it's clear where they are. And as much as I was hoping to see the case go to trial, uh, I understand why there was a settlement. You know, it's about dollars and cents oftentimes. But I was looking forward to Fox being held accountable for misinforming the public and acting with malice. This would have been a, a, a landmark defamation suit because the bar is so high and it's meant to be high. It's meant to be high for um, media organizations. But this was extraordinary. This was an extraordinary case. We've really never seen anything like this before. Um, and it, it's I, I'm not quite sure how it how it gets resolved or if they are actually held accountable. I mean, writing a check, maybe, but no on air apology, which is what I was looking for. So. There's a lot of different, there's a lot of different um, tentacles to this kind of how do we feel about journalism and media today? Because I think there's just so many facets to it with online media versus broadcast media, legacy brands like ABC, NBC, and Fox versus the cable news races versus what we're seeing now in the uh, with major layoffs, I don't know if you guys heard, but BuzzFeed News is um, BuzzFeed's getting rid of their news division um, and and laying off 15% of their of their employees. Uh, insider Business Insiders laying off 10% because there's so much competition, it's difficult to be profitable. So it's uh, and it's a shame because now in this day and age of disinformation, misinformation manipulating the information that we ingest as, as consumers and as Americans. Um, it's, we really need good, honest, hardworking journalists now more than ever. Um, and we really need to make sure that the media holds itself accountable when they go astray. So I think that it's a time for uh, some self-reflection going on in, in the, uh, the news space on a number of, of platforms including how they decide to cover the 2024 race again, because I believe the media helped considerably Donald Trump get elected in 2016 with the way they covered it. And I think they're making some of the same mistakes again by treating him as some 
normal conventional candidate, which he's not. Hi, my name is Eleanor Jenkins. I'm a second year majoring in philosophy and politics. Um, and I just wanted to follow up on what you said about the Fox um, Dominion settlement. Um, so the metric used in that case was um, whether or not Fox acted with real malice as outlined in New York Times v. Sullivan. Do you think that's a good legal standard for evaluating journalistic integrity? And should courts be involved with news outlets in the first place? Yeah, so the you know the, the Sullivan case, which has been kind of the, the gold standard for this, right? Um, it, I, I think that the court should only be involved as a last resort, right? We don't really necessarily want the courts inter, interfering in something that's such a fundamental right in our country. It's, you don't wanna mess with that too much unless you absolutely have to. And in this case, because you know, if you, if you ever watched um, the movie with Meryl Streep uh, about the Washington Post and the Pentagon Papers, the name's escaping me right now, but it's a, it's a really good, it's a really good movie with uh, Tom Hanks and all them and Bill Bradley and what they went through to keep the Pentagon Papers from being published. Like that was a that that was the the the, the case there where you needed the courts to get involved because it was an issue of public importance and the government didn't want folks to see it. Well, you know what? And you know, sorry, <laughs> but um, this was an issue of public importance and. And you know, could have shifted major opinion with the Vietnam War and all of that, and and what our government was doing. How are you supposed to hold, have a transparent government if you don't hold them accountable? And here's an opportunity for a newspaper. They came upon the information. There was their duty to print it. So, you know, you can always hide behind national security and things like that. Uh, you know, the government doesn't doesn't want folks to know. And there's there's some legitimate cases for that, obviously. But in the case of Fox. It was just so obvious how blatant once all what like we saw the recordings, the emails. I mean, there was a paper trail and a half here that showed that they knew damn well what they were broadcasting was untrue and dangerously untrue. This wasn't just like, you know, a Real Housewives of New Jersey rumor about somebody's wife and somebody's family and brother might have done this or that or no this is like of something of significant consequence that millions and millions of people were fed this on a, a diet of this on a regular basis that ultimately led to thousands of people storming the capitol in a violent insurrection because they believe the election was stolen falsely so yeah i think the the malice part of it is a good standard because mistakes are made and you know it happens and you don't want news organizations getting sued um into the ground for legitimate mistakes but when there's malice involved a it's like premeditated murder you know there's a difference between manslaughter and premeditated murder right um and i think that's the that's the, the point of the malice part of this standard and i think it applies and like i said i I don't think the courts should be involved unless they absolutely have to. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the bar being very high. I'm Virginia Pillion. I'm a second year media studies major and politics minor. Um, recently in the media, we've seen several takedowns, so to speak, of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. And in a recent tweet, you stated that he does not have what it takes. In this line of thinking, who could you see being a viable conservative candidate for president? And what qualities do you see as being valuable for a conservative candidate to have a chance against the current frontrunners, Trump and DeSantis? Well, um, I don't think there are any viable conservative candidates at this point. And that's a shame, but true. 
in my humble opinion, Donald Trump is going to be the nominee again, short of him dropping dead between now and the convention, he will be the nominee. And uh, it, it pains me to say this, and it really feels like freaking Groundhog Day. I, I cannot believe we're in this position again. <laughs> um, it's 2016 all over again in this respect with other candidates that just don't have it. I mean, I know a lot of my, my the, the, the Republican friends I still have thought, okay, DeSantis is the guy. Look what he's doing in Florida. He's kicking ass and taking names. He's owning the libs. And like, that's the, those are the standards now, right? Uh, for what makes you a rock star in the Republican circles. That wasn't the case when I was a Republican. And when I was your age in the nineties, when we had like, I mean, there was some theater, but not like what you see now. Again, we didn't have social media and everything, all of that to be a troll. Like nobody knew what that was but they knew how to use the media to get their point across the Newt Gingrich's and before Newt completely lost his mind, by the way, he was a very savvy political operative. Um, Dick Armey, Tom DeLay, some of those guys, the old school OGs of Republican politics back in the nineties, they knew how to legislate though. I mean, they had some of those antics, but they actually had a legislative agenda. The current Republican party What's their legislative agenda? I don't know. Are they interested in governing? I don't think so. If you look at the people who are running the party now, people like Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, I mean, you've got to be kidding me. These people aren't conservatives. And what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida, for anyone to think in the establishment that what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida is something they, they think should be scaled up on a national stage, what is wrong with these people? DeSantis is doing things that are so anathema to what basic Republican principles were, particularly with this really petulant and, and asinine argument with Disney. Like this conflict that he has with Disney is, what is that? Since when do Republicans who claim to be fiscal conservatives, free market conservatives, since when do, do, do they applaud the government seeking political retribution against a private company. That's not okay. What last time I checked when Barack Obama would make comments about corporations and paying their fair share or going after corporations, Republicans were running around calling Barack Obama a Marxist. So my how things change in a couple of election cycles. So even though DeSantis may have raised $100 million, it's giving me very... Jeb Bush 2016 vibes. Jeb Bush had $110 million too and didn't make it past Super Tuesday. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it once people start to see who Ron DeSantis is in, on a national scale, a national level, the more people are exposed to him, the more that donors have been exposed to him. This has not been a great week for Ron DeSantis. If you go look today, uh, Politico, the Washington Times, the front page of Drudge, the Washington Post, uh, Axios, story after story after story about how Ron DeSantis' trip to DC was a bomb. He And he came here to shore up endorsements for him. But even before he's running, he wants to make sure he has those endorsements, right? He got one endorsement from the woman that he appointed as Secretary of State, so she owed him one. Donald <laughs> Trump came out with more endorsements for president than Ron DeSantis did, and he didn't do anything this week. So what does that tell you? He can't even get his own people in Florida to endorse him, and they know him best. 
So Ron DeSantis, and, and um, I'm sure many of you know, I, I'm a senior advisor for the Lincoln Project and one of our co-founders and my, my very good friend and partner in political crime, Rick Wilson, he knows Florida very well. And Lincoln Project has been kind of poking this bear between DeSantis and Trump for over a year because we wanna see the internecine warfare because in my opinion, the party needs to burn to the ground before it can be, it needs to be built from scratch because it's so tainted now that there isn't to your original question, there is no alternative to counter Trumpism because none of them are willing to stand up and say enough. And so we've been predicting this, that they would be DeSantis and Trump, they would go after each other and that Donald Trump would vanquish DeSantis with ease. And it's happening right now. And we, we have a joke around the Lincoln Project where we say we're hate, we're so sick of being right. And we don't, because because when we're right, it's usually not good for the country. That means that like the worst case scenario is happen, happening. But we also know that we have the, the ability to call it like we see it. And a lot of people in the Republican party are still living on like earth two somewhere. They're in this fantasy world thinking, that I don't know, Tim Scott thinks that he's gonna show up and that he's got the he's got the juice to take down Trump. He can't even answer a question about abortion. <laughs> you think he's gonna take on Trump? Nikki Haley? She can't decide whether the sun is up or down at, at noon. Like she she doesn't want to offend anyone. I mean, if you can't answer a basic question about do you believe that Joe Biden is the duly elected president of the United States? Yes or no? Um, do you believe that January 6th was a violent insurrection against the United States? Yes or no? Um, do you believe that Donald Trump is an existential threat to democracy? Yes or no? And depending on how you answer those questions, in my opinion, disqualifies you from being a viable presidential candidate for the Republicans anyway. Hi, I'm Zach Litter. I'm a second year majoring in politics with a minor in public policy. Uh, so as someone who has been a regular contributor on net TV news networks like ABC and CNN, how do you characterize the methods and tactics the media uses or might use to stoke partisanship? And what steps would you like to see the media take to end divisiveness and hyperpartisanship? Yeah. So like, as I said a, a couple minutes ago, um, you know, living through the 2016 campaign as a CNN contributor, sitting on countless panels over the years and watching how they would they would take some of the most extreme um, views and pit them against the polar opposites because the audience, they wanted to see the fight. And even though I, I pride myself on being a pretty vicious debater, I didn't ever go into those segments or into those, into those hits with the, with the idea that, okay, who am I going to, you know, KO today? <laughs> that was never my goal. It got there because some of the crazy things that would come out of their mouths on the other side, I would just have to be like, just cut it out because you're full of shit. And I'd been there. I'm going to call you out on your hypocrisy and you're not going to get away with it. So that, you know, and it became, people knew that whether they agreed with me or not, they knew that I was going to come to them with facts and come to them straight because I, it wasn't about a performance for me. It was about get to getting to the truth and making sure people were properly informed. Um, I don't know that I was happy with how CNN covered Trump in the lead up to his nomination sitting there. I mean, there was all kinds of news going on and all kinds of information about Trump. And they would sit there with a camera 
counting down to when he was his plane taxied down the runway, when it was in the air, when he would land, they'd have a countdown where it was just an empty podium to his rallies and all of that free airtime, the oxygen was just sucked out of the room. And it, it kind of, it became a spectacle. So people were kind of just, you know, watching with popcorn, getting entertained, not realizing that this guy is, is insane. And he's a threat to our democracy. You hear what he's saying he wants to do? You want to give this guy power? But they treated it like it was a, like an apprentice episode, like a reality show. So I call it the Jerry Springerization of politics. I don't know, does Jerry Springer still come on? I, I don't know. It was big when I was your age, but that was really where it started for me, where I saw the kind of this reward for bad behavior in the media and in society, where the more sensational, the more they focus on it. It was Roger Ailes who actually coined the term, if it bleeds, it leads, back in the day when he worked in local news and worked on the Nixon campaign and things like that, that he was famous for that because he knew people are drawn in by the tragedy. Is that good for America? I don't know. I don't think so. Les Moonves, who used to run CBS, got himself in some trouble, but at the time in 2016, he said, Trump is bad for America, but great for ratings. So the news organizations, they know that by creating kind of a, a bit of a spectacle, it draws eyeballs. And I, I don't know that that's, um, I just don't think that that's a good thing. You, you have to be careful with that because you don't want to desensitize people to the, the crazy that's going on. And I, I fear a little bit of that is happening, which is why I said I'm concerned about the way that some channels are, are covering this election cycle already because they're, they're like, covering it like it's the horse race that we always do. It's very formulaic. Meanwhile, you look at what Donald Trump is doing and saying every day. I mean, the guy's putting out weird like cosplay fetish NFT card trading cards and making videos talking about, you know, uh, making homelessness illegal and rounding people up into tent cities and then he'll take care of them. I mean, this is like out there crazy stuff. This is not in line with our constitutional Republic. And it's just like, yeah, okay, well, whatever. But Donald Trump's really smart going after Ron DeSantis. Like, <laughs> this is not normal. So the partisanship that they feed off of, I mean, you know, I appear on MSNBC a lot now because I'm not under contract with CNN anymore. And MSNBC, you know, sometimes they go too far to the other side. They're very one-sided with things. Um, and then Fox, well, we already know they have an agenda. And it's interesting that that the news outlets that get the most, the highest ratings, uh, as far as like consumers, NPR, which is pretty down the middle. Some on the right would say that they're le a bunch of lefty progressives, but um, I've begun to listen to more NPR since I've taken the red pill and I'm no longer in the matrix on the Republican side, but mm -hmm. um, NPR is pretty, it's pretty straight, you know, it's pretty straight news. Bloomberg, um, you know, like PBS, and I can't believe that I'm even saying this because I think of PBS and I think of my grandparents, but it's it's not. PBS is actually um, trying to modernize a bit, but it's a good source of news. So those nonpartisan non outlets are gaining more viewership and more readers and more listeners because people are sick and tired of the, you know, the partisanship by the by some of the major cable news channels and um, and it's tough because people. I, there's News Nation. I don't know how many of you have heard of News Nation. 
it's a new cable channel that uh, that was taken over by one of the cable uh, one of the media companies called Nextstar based out of Chicago and they're trying to build what they what they're calling um a, you know a centrist neutral news site um where they think that they're they're balancing things with on both sides and they're they're trying i think they're overcorrecting a little bit there some of their anchors are a little obnoxious and i think that that's a way to bring I guess, a fair balance to the conversation, but that's just my personal opinion. But Chris Cuomo's over there, Dan Abrams, um, uh, Leland Vittert, who was at Fox, who's a bit of a, he's talking about obnoxious, good God, but they're trying to challenge both sides. That's what they consider it to be. So they're trying. It's a fledgling network at this point because it's very hard to change people's behaviors because they like the confirmation bias of being with their own tribe. So it's very hard to get, just straight news information to people. Just ask CNN because they've they've completely changed their programming and their approach to things and it's not working. Hi, my name is Eli. I'm a second year studying at the Batten School of Public Policy. Um, over the past couple of decades, we've seen a steep decline in local news organizations. And as a result of this, local officials aren't held to the same standards as they once were, and people are unaware of policies directly affecting them. In an age where media shifted away from being informational towards serving more as entertainment, how can we restore local news institutions? Tell your parents to subscribe to your local newspaper. <laughs> um, since you guys are in college now, or you can subscribe too, just as long as they get the money. But people have got to start supporting their local newspapers. Uh, without that, the more local newspapers that are taken over by these large conglomerates that cut their local news reporters um, and they just use wire services, it is such a disservice to the communities. Because what happens in your local, like your, your state and, and local governments, that's really what affects you every day. It's really not what happens in Washington or what happens in, you know, it, what the president and Congress are doing. No, it's what's going on with your city council, your school board, your county commission, your governor's office. Like that's what impacts everyday lives. That's who determines, um, you know, ordinances, building permits, what businesses are coming to your your state, cut tax cuts, um, school board, you know, curriculum. Those are all the like that is really what impacts your everyday life. They're also responsible for drawing congressional lines, um, you know, uh, judicial appointments at a, at, a, at a state and local level, so if they're not elected. Um, or if they are elected, how the hell are you supposed to know? So many people, do, I don't even know, and I'm pretty well read in. I don't know who are the, the judges are in our in my, where I live here in Northern Virginia. I don't know. I can only name a couple county county supervisors, too because I'm so entrenched in national politics. And now that I'm a homeowner, I've actually subscribed to local news outlets because I'm like, I need to pay attention to where my tax dollars are going locally now. And so we have to start paying attention. My grandfather was a public servant his entire life. He was in World War II. He was a police officer for 40 years in my hometown and a volunteer fireman. He got the local newspaper, the Bergen Record, every single day until the day he died. And as a kid, it was like a tradition for me to go and walk to the end of our driveway and get the paper. My grandfather would say, Tara, go get the paper. You know, well, there was no R because he's from Jersey. Tara, go get the paper, you know, and I would bring it in and I would sit with him and he would he would you know, uh, smoke his pipe and drink coffee and read the paper. Those kinds of traditional ways of consuming local news are, are going 
away because of our phones once again, because people don't do that anymore. So instead they have online subscriptions. We've got to start supporting them and making sure that local reporters have the resources they need or else, how else can you expect to have an informed citizenry so they can make the right decisions that impact their communities? But I'm with you, I, I worry about local news because as you see the, the demise of local news, you also see um, the rise in more extreme candidates or, or crazier things going on with city councils or school boards because people don't know what's going on until it's too late. I'm Victoria. I'm a second year government major. Um, so over the last couple of years, we have seen the devastating effects of the spread of misinformation on social media platforms such as TikTok, Telegram and Twitter. As we know, Trump used his platforms to spread lies about election fraud culminating in the January 6th insurrection. Leading up to the 2024 election, especially due to the rise in the number of people who get their news primarily from social media outlets, is it possible to regulate the spread of misinformation on such platforms to protect the integrity of elections without violating constitutional rights to free speech? Well, uh, great question. And that is the challenge facing national security experts, First Amendment experts, constitutional scholars, and tech. It's an intersection of all of those things because, and now with AI and deep fakes, that presents an entirely new, really concerning challenge as far as misinformation and disinformation going into this election. Um, you know, the challenge with social media platforms, and uh, I don't know if you guys have studied this with uh, section 210 of the Telecom Act and, and for the, for the most part, social media companies have been immune to being responsible for the content. They're like, we just provide the platform. We're not content moderators. And then after 2016, and we saw what the Russians were doing and, you know, foreign actors were exploiting that freedom and exploiting that, that section of the telecom act. Uh, now tech companies were under more scrutiny, Facebook in particular, right? That was before TikTok existed. And TikTok presents its own problem with the Chinese government ownership of it and what they're doing and embedding all kinds of malware and things so that they know everything about everyone who uses TikTok. Um, we don't have TikTok in my house. It's not on my phone. My husband's a secret service agent and we're not permitted to have TikTok anywhere near our house because it's a national security threat and his security clearance could be threatened. But um, the idea now that Facebook or Twitter um, you know, what Elon Musk is doing, that's a whole nother conversation, but that these social media platforms are now responsible for content moderation. It's making it, it's, it's, they're, they're, they're resisting that because part of the allure of these, of these social platforms was that you could post whatever you wanted within the standards that these private companies set, right? The community standards, but then it was about enforcement. How do you apply it fairly? What happens if it's, you know, they, uh, you know, conservatives thought that they were being censored. Liberals felt that they were being censored. Like you, you're not going to make everybody happy, but these are private companies. And as long as section 210 exists the way it does, I think that, that I would like to see some reform there. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's a challenge again, because how do you moderate content? I mean, these are private companies. They can set whatever standards they want. It's not like the UK. Uh, or places in Europe where they have laws and they have regulations at a national level about what you can and cannot say um, to some degree. They don't have the same liberal free press 
laws that we have here. It's a little different over there in the UK. Um, but I don't know that people want to go that way. So how do we balance it? I'm not quite sure, but I do know that these companies need to be more responsible for what they, the algorithms that are used and how they're manipulated to boost certain things. What the Chinese are doing with TikTok, they know exactly what they're doing. They're boosting things that make Americans look stupid and feeding people with silly things that don't matter or things that are, they're, they're, they've been bragging. I think just recently there was, um, an intelligence report that came out that said that the, the Chinese are bragging about how they can manipulate our social media. The Russians, we already know from the Mueller report what they did in 2014, 15, 16, and continue to do with manipulating with bots and using their the GRU to sit in to sit in the their their computer computer uh, you know hubs there in Russia typing out, pretending to be Americans and stoking racial animosity and culture wars and amplifying those things because they know they know our, our psychology here. They know our behavior. So they're using these platforms. And so how do we go after that? How do we monitor it and stop it versus maintaining a, a, you know, a free, free expression? It's, it's an ongoing debate. There really is no direct answer to that. In my opinion, I know you guys will probably hate me, but I, <laughs> I think TikTok should absolutely be banned or it should have to be purchased by an American company. Um, it's a, it, it, it is a national security threat and they knew what they were doing by making it seem benign. Oh, it's just a bunch of parents and kids and people dancing and doing silly things on TikTok. It, it's way more nefarious than that and they, knew, and they know it. And now it's so embedded everywhere that it's more difficult to extricated out of our out of our daily lives and uh that's the genius of their of their manipulation of our foreign enemies unfortunately they know our vulnerabilities hi tara i'm vidar hegeman a third year at uva and a religious studies major can you give your definition of a racial pacifier and expound or clarify on your recent statements regarding senator tim scott as a conservative, can you identify any instances where Democrats have used candidates as racial pacifiers? Uh, I called them also a racial security blanket. Um, and yes, I stand by both of those things. Coming from experience with inside the Republican Party for so long, I saw the way that some Republicans would treat minority candidates um, and some the way some of those candidates would behave when it came to issues of race, where they would excuse away problematic attitudes about race in this country, about the experience of people of color in this country that are verifiable historical facts. And you know, as a minority conservative, I had to struggle with um, balancing, being honest about some of the uglier sides of the racial history of this country and also, my conservative viewpoint about individual empowerment, not being falling victim to being a woman or a minority in this country um, because it because of those systemic and historical challenges and, and obstacles for minorities in this country and, and, and inequalities. And it's so it's people like Tim Scott and others, and it's not all minority conservatives because there are other. My friend Michael Steele is nobody's racial pacifier. Trust Michael Steele has been honest about where America has faltered on the issues of race. 
he was honest, maybe too honest, about where the Republican Party engaged in voter suppression efforts and in their, um, you know, he'll be the first one to tell you that he didn't agree with the Supreme Court overturning, overturning parts of the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby case, because he was there, he witnessed the party chairman and local chairman who tried to make it more difficult for minorities to vote. So when you have people like a Tim Scott or um, Ben Carson, for goodness sakes, who come in and they say things that give white people comfort so that they, to, to make it okay for them not to acknowledge some of the more problematic racial history in this country. That's what I have an issue with. And the thing about Tim Scott is that when he first got elected, I was like, okay, all right, we, we, have, our, we have a black Senator in South Carolina, this is great. This was before the era of Trump. And I was actually in South Carolina for the 2016 primary, where it was Nikki Haley, Marco Rubio, and Tim Scott, all on the same stage in South Carolina when Marco Rubio was still a candidate, who I that's who I supported initially in 2016. And I and I call me a sap, but I like shed a tear watching them on stage giving speeches and talking about the future of the party and the country. And I was like, oh my goodness, because they, it was diversity and they were more honest about taking on some of these things, right? Nikki Haley got rid of the Confederate flag, which was not an easy thing to do in South Carolina as a minority woman. Um, but then we saw it all fall apart and we saw how the party, where it went on the issues of race and ethnicity and immigration, and it just went in the complete opposite direction. And they nominated and supported a bigot. And Tim Scott, he, where has he been? He's in a position of power. Where is he on the issues of what, what's going on in, in Florida and other places with book banning and with the CRT nonsense? It doesn't exist with, you know, banning books about black history. You're a black man in America from the South. You have an incredible story that you came from a family of sharecroppers and who were who, who suffered from incredible inequality. And he has too, but he was able to make himself into something, overcome those obstacles and become a United States Senator. And yeah, okay, he tells a story or two about being racially profiled in the Capitol, but that's where it ends. As a black man, I feel like he has a responsibility to be honest about what's happening when things are actually happening. So when he's not, and when he pussyfoots around those issues, in my opinion, that's a racial pacifier for people who are supporting policies and candidates in this country that don't want to hear the bad parts. You can still love America and acknowledge our history on the issues of race and what's going on now. So that's why I said what I said, because people would not, they wouldn't give Tim Scott the time of day if it weren't for the fact that he skirts those issues. If Tim Scott was as real about racial issues as Michael Steele was, he would not be a United States Senator in South Carolina. And that's a, I think that's a sad state of affairs. Oh, Democrats, have Democrats ever used um, candidates, I mean, part of the reason why I'm not a Democrat is because I feel like Democrats take minority votes for granted. And even though there's well some well-intentioned folks out there and policies and they think they're doing the right thing, I also happen to agree with George W. Bush's famous line, the soft bigotry of low expectations. I think there's a certain amount of uh, presumptions about minorities that some Democrats use that is... Um, the soft bigotry of low expectations. And they think that they can be the saviors and come in and fix things uh, as opposed to investing in 
creating equal access to opportunities, you can't guarantee outcomes. And a lot of I've seen, I've had an issue with how Democrats approach that some of those things um, in minority communities. But that to me now, all of that is secondary to making sure that our democracy stays intact. And as much as I disagree with policy with Democrats, they're not the ones trying to destroy our democracy and in, you know institute authoritarian, very fascist ideas in this country and masquerade it as patriotism and democracy. And I feel very passionate about this as someone, like I said, I mean, I'm 47. So I've been around the block in Republican politics and I've seen it. So I have, I have, a, I have a less tolerance for some of these black Republicans who have been toting the line under Donald Trump and choosing party loyalty and political expediency over doing the right thing. Byron Donald is another example of that in Florida. What a shame, he should know better. My name is Willoughby Hardesty and I'm studying at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy with a minor in social entrepreneurship from the McIntyre School of Commerce. According to the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability, in fiscal year 2022, over 6,000 migrants per day on average were apprehended after illegally crossing the border, which amounts to over 2.2 million apprehensions in just one 12-month period. Additionally, an estimated 600,000 illegal immigrants evaded apprehension entirely in fiscal year 2022. In just the first three months of fiscal year 2023, over 7,000 migrants per day on average were apprehended after illegally crossing the border and reports indicate nearly 300,000 illegal immigrants have evaded apprehension just four months into fiscal year 2023. Given your extensive work with immigration during your time in the U.S. House of Representatives, what policy changes are needed to address this surge and ensure fair and humane treatment of asylum seekers? Immigration has been a mess since the amnesty in the 80s that Reagan signed. Um, he signed that because he was sold a bill of goods the promise was, okay, we give amnesty to the people who are here. And at the time, it was only like a couple million. We, we sign the amnesty, for the folks that are here, and then we'll get tougher on enforcement. That never happened. And it became, as the years went by, it became more and more difficult to enforce immigration law because one side like the idea of letting folks come over here and, and if they wanna come, let them come and this is America, it should be open to everybody. The other side, Republicans are going, well, we kind of like this cheap labor here, right? The Chamber of Commerce and the restaurant businesses, the hotel businesses, agriculture, Americans, we can't pay Americans $3 an hour to pick fruit but we've got these folks that can come over here. We can exploit them and make more of a profit. And we, we really don't want it to change. We kind of like the status quo. And then in the 90s, you had uh, California try to, pro to pass Prop 187, which was ruled unconstitutional. And that basically said no government funding for illegal immigrants, for school, for um, various public services. And it was deemed unconstitutional. That's really where you started to see using immigration now as a cudgel, as one of those issues, as a wedge issue for Republicans. And since the 90s, it's been difficult to pin people down on, let's fix the system, because there's really no one solution. There's not. The, the, the problem has gotten so out of control that we're, we're never gonna see a comprehensive immigration bill. It's never happening. It's now too much of a polarizing issue. And there's no benefit 
for some of these political players to actually try to solve the problem because they use it as a political wedge issue and it gets people very excited. Meanwhile, you have millions of people who are, who are trying to come here for whatever reasons, legitimate or not, who are being exploited in the process. It's terribly unfair. We have a humanitarian crisis on the border. And it, it, it's frustrating for me. When, when I was in Congress as a staffer from 2006 to 2013, George Bush was trying, George, like, George Bush's approach to immigration was a pretty level-headed, moderate approach to it, right? He came, he was governor of Texas. He understood kind of the dynamics on both sides of the border and he was trying, but he got dragged by the right wing of the party for not being tough enough against illegal immigration. And he wasn't able to get a comprehensive bill passed. He wasn't able to get, um, you know, he, he was only able to get basically the Secures Fence Act, the Secure Fence Act, which was supposed to build 700 miles of fence. I don't think that's all actually even been built by now. And that was 2007. <laughs> so what is this, 2013? Um, and so trying to figure out the security side of it, I'm a border security hawk. I think that we need to do what it takes to secure our border. And if that means drones, if that means more boots on the ground, if that means fencing where it makes sense, like we, we need to do something because what's going on now is not sustainable. It's not sustainable for our country and our resources and those communities on the other side of the border. It's not sustainable for the folks that are coming over here and human trafficking being exploited. The, it's, it's just, it's bad all the way around. We can't keep track of what's going on. Um, but the idea of amnesty for dreamers, I think you have to do that at this point. I was against that back when I worked in Congress because I felt like it was an incentive for people to keep coming here illegally. We have to get rid of the magnets. But it's, but we also need to, we can't keep people in the shadows anymore. You know, in, in, in real life, it's not practical to just say that people are supposed to just live in the shadows. Like if you've been here over a certain amount of time or if you can pay taxes or have a fine, there has to be something worked out in the, in the, in the dreamer part of it. But no one wants to have those conversations. They don't. And Title 42 is about to get lifted again, um, which, which was something that they tried to use as you know, the public emergency declaration during COVID to try to halt the, um, the uh, amount of people coming across the border illegally, or at least keeping them in Mexico before they claim asylum. You know, it's, uh, it, it was a, a, a nifty tactic to use, but it, they can't keep doing that. There's not a public emergency anymore. One of the solutions I think for that is the third, the third country, the safe harbor countries, because not everyone, and I've seen this firsthand, our asylum system is broken. And, and there were advocates who were giving, who were coaching people in Central America about what to say. And is there violence? Is there poverty in these countries? Is it dangerous? Yes, it is. But we need to try to help fix the problems in those countries because we can't take everybody and we have to have a more orderly system here. And everyone just can't come over here and say, I have credible fear. And then, okay, you, you can get, you are on the path to asylum. Here's a, here's a, uh, what they call a parole sheet. You can come in, come back to your immigration hearing in two years. Good luck. Most people don't come back because they can abscond into the U S they have relatives here and they can get away with living here illegally. The ones who do come back are the ones that have immigration representatives or lawyers or things like that, which is only about 5%. So 
that doesn't work. We have immigration. The backlog in immigration is it's millions of cases. It would take 10 years to clear out the backlog. So this is a problem. And both sides are guilty of not doing enough to cut off the magnets for coming here, making sure that our border patrol and, and our border security, it has what they need in order to do what they need to do. And we need to, in Mexico, frankly, plays a role in this too, because they should never be allowed to get as far because at this point now, it's not just the Mexicans that are coming here, it's also their neighbors. So they have two separate categories. And um, Mexico plays a role in this and stopping them at the Southern border with Guatemala and they're not. They do a little bit, but then they don't because there's a lot of money involved in this. It's a, um, it's a really, really complicated thing. But what concerns me most is that the, there are lives at stake and children and families and, and just safety issues, human trafficking, the cartels. We've got to do something about it. And I, I wish that the, the Biden administration would be a little tougher um, not like what Trump was doing and the way that he was dehumanizing immigrants, but there has to be a happy medium somewhere. But I'm not encouraged that anything's going to get done anytime soon, given how divided the Congress is, and they haven't been able to do it in 30 years. Hi, my name is Keone. And so my question is around the GOP consistently alienating voters, young people with climate change and gun legislation, women with Roe, racial minorities with voter suppression, and so this doesn't seem to be a winning strategy. How do you foresee the future of the GOP if they keep on consistently alienating voters? So what I would say is cognitive dissonance is a hell of a drug. <laughs> and political expediency can be very intoxicating. So they're looking at sh the short term. They're not thinking strategically long term. And it's shocking to me. I, I think at one point they were thinking long-term. After 2012, I'm sure you guys have heard about this, Republicans, when Mitt Romney lost, the Republicans run by Reince Priebus, he was head of the RNC at the time, commissioned an autopsy to dive into what the hell happened. Because, you know, what did we do wrong here? And guess what they found? They need to expand the tent by reaching out to mainly the Hispanic community because it was the fastest growing population, the Asian Pacific community and blacks. They've gotta do something to get the minorities involved. Otherwise they're going to continue to lose. Well, not only did they not listen to that, they went in the complete opposite direction with someone like Donald Trump who has used the, the idea of um, the other and xenophobia and bigotry and, and normalizing all of those things by otherizing people who are other than white men in this country. Um, and they've embraced this. I can't believe that like white Christian nationalism is a thing and dominating the Republican party. These people are dying off. Fox News is brand, the people, their, their viewers, they're that demographic, they're dying off. Their average age is like 65 for their viewers. They're not investing in the future. They're not investing in policies that can be aligned with traditional conservative, not this perverse version of whatever this is today, but liberal conservatism, little L, and liberal democracy. Um, they're not investing in presenting those ideas to the younger generations, to um, minority communities. They're just not because they're too worried about the immediacy of the next election. And right now, 
the outrage industrial complex works to a certain degree. Because if you look at it, yes, Donald Trump lost. Yes, the Republicans didn't. They Yes, they took over Congress still, even though it wasn't at the large margins that they could have. There's still an appetite for this brand of Republicanism now, this Trumpist, Trumpy, MAGA Republicanism, because a lot of those people are still getting elected. So as you learn in politics, politicians are single seekers of reelection. That is their goal. That is their rational goal. So they're not going to do things against their interest, quote, their interest that would threaten their reelection. So if that means like what Lindsey Graham has done, if that means that you completely change your positions, you're a chameleon in order to stay relevant and have access to power and say what you need to say so they'll get reelected, whether you believe it or not, that's what they're going to do. That's a very cynical view of politics. And not not everyone is like that. Um, There are some good eggs out there, but they're becoming less and less frequent, particularly on the Republican side, because they none of them want to step out and be honest about what Donald Trump has turned the party into and how they have to contort themselves and be political hypocrites in order to placate the rabid base. And I think that that's, you know, that's bad because in the voter suppression efforts also with, I just saw um, Cleta Mitchell, who used to be a well-respected election lawyer. She was one of the top election lawyers for Republicans for decades. And then she lost her mind and went MAGA. But today she's she's running around doing workshops and speaking at Republican donor retreats about how to make it more difficult for college students to vote on campus. That, what, are we, what are we doing here? Because they're still living in the old times thinking that you guys don't vote. The, the conventional wisdom was 18 to 24 year olds don't vote, so why bother? Well, you guys proved that wrong in the last few election cycles. And I'm thrilled at that because we need your generation to be involved. We need you guys out there. And what people don't change, they're not activated until they pay enough of a price oftentimes. And that that applies to a lot of things in life. But you guys have grown up in an era of school shootings and mass shootings. That didn't happen when I was a kid. You know, you guys have grown up in in an era where climate change is really impacting us in ways that a lot of us couldn't imagine. So you're looking at these things and going, oh, no, 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 we're not okay with this. And you're taking action in large numbers and doing something about it. And I think that's fantastic. So Republicans need to get with it. And the people who are smart and not these irrational, like cult members of MAGA, the more establishment, I say that very loosely because they're, the lines are very blurred nowadays, but there's still some, they understand it's a game of numbers. You can't get to 50 plus one and win elections when you continue to shrink your voting base. It's nonsensical. But here we are um, where the Republican Party is fighting a war within itself over the, the extremist wing that has overtaken any sensibility in the party. And those who know better, who are trying to reel it back in, it's uh, it's going it's, it's going to take a, a couple of drubbings at the polls for Republicans to finally say, as a party, leaders in the party to finally say enough is enough. But I'm not holding my breath on that day, because obviously a violent insurrection, and someone who is a vile human being, liar, lunatic, malignant narcissist who almost took down our government, wasn't enough to course correct. So I don't know what will for them right now. Well, Tara Sentmeyer, thank you so much for the no-holds-barred discussion. That's my brand. 
you know we love to see it. <laughs> Thank you again for joining us, Tara, and we look forward to having you on Grounds again soon. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me.